Welcome back, everybody, to Person of Interest with me, Natalie Jones. This next episode came to me from the powers that be. I met Emily Henkel at a neighborhood block party where I was working, and I asked her why she was wearing a boot on her foot. She was on crutches. She was sitting in the shade, and it was hot. And what she told me was the cliff notes of the story you're about to hear from her mouth. On Easter Sunday, 2021, this past year, her and her boyfriend Alex went hiking in Death Valley National Park in California. Six days later, Emily emerged, broken foot, broken ankle, and by herself. The story you're about to hear is nonetheless jarring, traumatic, and one of courage and strength and triumph. As her brother Chris says, the warrior spirit lives on, and it does, in Alex through her and in Emily's strength that she has tapped into that has changed her entire life. I've got to know Emily pretty well, and her and her family are the coolest. They are the best Westsiders, as we Cincinnatians say. My people, I'm a Westsider as well. It is my sincere honor and privilege to share with you my conversation with Emily Hankel at Fretboard Brewing Company for a live podcast that we recorded in front of a couple hundred people. It is uncensored. We do not cuss, I don't think, um, but there, there are some details that might be a little hard for children to hear. Also, about halfway through, we kind of stop, and that's because a woman in the live audience fainted, and we had to make sure that she was okay before we um, before we conquered on. I'm very proud of Emily for sharing her story. Every step of the way, she has just inched through the muck of every emotion that this experience has provided for her and given to her, and she's done it all with grace, with beauty, with strength. And this is, as Emily and I have been saying, this is just the beginning. Emily, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and uh, my soul sister. I hope you all enjoy and get a lot out of this. Enjoy, everybody. Emily Henkel. Uh, Can I just start off? Hi, I'm Natalie, and this is Emily. Give it up for Emily. She is why we were all here. Isn't it, is, is it, uh, that's how nervous I am. I really am nervous. I have interviewed many people in my life, but nothing, no story, no one pale comparison to Miss Emily Hinkle as a woman, as a daughter, as a human being, as a trauma survivor, as a, just as a everything. She is pretty phenomenal and unlike anybody else I've ever met. I've had the pleasure of getting to know her pretty, pretty well over the past couple days, and it has been amazing. And once you get to know her, I feel like I do now, you won't be surprised out of anything you're about to hear, which is a pretty, it's, I can't say the word phenomenal enough. Um, It's a great story. She is an amazing woman. Her family is the best. I'm so glad you guys, thank you for welcoming me into your home and all of your dogs. I had a great time. So let's do it. Without further ado, Emily Hankel. So I need to get over the initial shock of hearing my own voice on the microphone. I apologize. Yeah. We're good. Yeah? Yeah, here we go. If you can put your microphone up, just rest it right there. It's fine. COVID's over, so it doesn't matter anymore. 
It's fine. <laughs> All right, I'll stay right there. <laughs> so, how are you feeling today? Um, this is a lot. This is a good, uh, easy way to say hi to everybody and thank you for coming. <laughs> Never in a million years did I think that I'd be able to like sit down and do something like this. So I guess it's still early to tell if I can actually make it through, but we'll see. I'm excited. I'm very excited. Your mom said to me earlier, if you would have known Emily three years ago, under no circumstance at all, not even this, would she ever sit up on this stage? I think they can attest the best. Yeah. <laughs> so why are you here tonight? Why did you want to tell your story today? Still a good question. I can't say that uh, anything fully makes sense to me in my head. I just know that. Obviously, I went through some pretty crazy stuff a couple months ago, and I knew um, pretty immediately that something, if and when I made it out of the canyon that I was stuck in, that looked somewhat like. So... <laughs> This is Death Valley behind us, by the way. A nice visual. Um, I just I knew I had some sort of purpose or something to fulfill once I got off the mountain. Um, and I might not know exactly what that is yet, but um, you know, Natalie and I met super organically, very naturally, and uh, as opposed to some of the oh, like a bunch of other news stations were reaching out wanting to do stories, but Natalie and I just kind of ran into each other um, in my neighborhood of all places <laughs> for a neighborhood event we were doing, and uh, I don't know, just we immediately connected, and I just knew that that was the kind of the first step in my healing yeah. process or whatever. I just knew I wanted to tell the story. I didn't know how, why, when. Where? Just went off your feeling, a gut feeling. Gut feeling. You can probably say that, yeah. Do you feel like you've lived your life off of your gut feeling? I would say for the most part, yeah. I feel Forever. Like I've, I've had a pretty good, uh, I like to say, intuition. I usually go making decisions based on, I don't know, I don't know, what, whatever feels right, whatever is, some people might say, if, if the vibe feels right, then... That's usually what I base my decisions off of. So what's crazy about you is the more that I got to know you is that you may say that you are shy, but you have made pretty bold moves based on your intuition throughout your entire life. I would say, uh, especially in the last couple months, that kind of changed everything. I'm s certainly still, like if I look too far out yonder, I might still, you know, <laughs> lose it. But at the same time... Yeah. Um, you know, being on the mountain and just being in that type of situation, which obviously we'll kind of dive into, but being in that kind of situation, I just had a, a new serious appreciation for life and uh, an understanding deeper than probably anything I could ever explain mm -hmm. of just um, what's really important in life, what's not. Um, and I let go of a lot of irrational fears that I did or didn't know that I had this being one of them. <laughs> of talking in front of people? Yes, yeah. essentially. This room, it's a room of love, yeah. okay. It is the one, it's a palatable room of love. So today is June 7th, and you say couple months, and you mean it quite literally. Where were you two months ago? Two months ago today. Um, Two months ago today, um, I was literally just sitting in a uh, 
a really desolate canyon in the middle of Death Valley National Park. Um, and I was, you know, laying in this little shelter that I had built for myself. <laughs> um, I guess looking back two months from now, it's kind of crazy sitting here doing this right now as opposed to, you know, that time two months ago when I was sitting, laying there, writing on my phone, just all the thoughts that were going through my head at the time, just because um, I miraculously had my phone on hand with, you know, negative amounts of service, but uh, I did have my access to my notes and everything, so I was able to look back on that. And so two months ago, I'm, you know, the quite stark reality of it is that I was writing a will on my phone because I didn't know if I was actually going to make it out, if I was going to be found. I had a whole lot of hope that I would, but um, I also wasn't going to let go of the reality that, you know, I, if you look at it from an aerial view, I have no idea how they ended up finding us where we were, but, you know, two months ago, I was, you know, writing a will, and... and how, how old are you? 27. When is your birthday? Uh, December 5th. And December 5th. Yeah. When you were writing your will, did you... What was your level of... I'm going to make it out, or this is it? Essentially, yeah. Um, I thought of all the things that were most important to me. Jane made it. That's a dog, Jane. My dog, Jane. <laughs> She's a great dog. Even I like her. She's wonderful. I let her get my pants all dirty. I did not care at all. A lot of fur going yeah. on. Her and I also have a soul connection, Jane. Yeah, so... Um, well, so let's start. So you're a Cincinnati gal. I am. I think as uh, most of us are. A West Sider as well. West Side. Yeah. Don't test us on that. We win every time. West Side's the best side. Um, and so... And you went to St. Ursula, which I did as well. You yes. went for a year. For, for one year, I did go to St. Ursula, yeah. And then you went to Seton. Seton for the remaining three. That's right. I mean, whatever. Okay. <laughs> but so, like, what were you like in high school? Like, what kind of kid were you growing up? Um, ex extremely shy. Um, I would almost need, a, you know, someone else to explain me for this one. I don't know. Shy. Funny. 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 Hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> that is true. These aren't my words. <laughs> risk taker. A risk taker. Get, apparently. I think that you're subtly bold. From everything that I have gathered from this woman, you are subtly, incredibly bold. You say that your brothers say you have resting, bi resting bitch face. I don't know. That's resting boss face, okay? She's been a boss forever. She just never knew it. You, could, you know, both. I got both, but you know. <laughs> now I'm like predominantly, like I guess, the boss face going on. Yes, that is true. Snaps to that. So you stayed home, and you went to UC. Yes. For college. I did. And you still lived in your parents' house. Margaret and Steve, they're here as well. Great people. Great people. Um, and so when you were in college, you once, um, what happened when you were in college? 
Um, I think uh, when I was in college, I didn't, you know, I had a interesting college experience only in the sense that, you know, I lived home because I was interested in saving money, paying as much um, out of pocket as I could. I studied speech pathology. I did my undergrad degree in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't necessarily, I wasn't like a huge partier. I didn't, you know, immerse myself in the bar scene or anything like that. I studied mm-hmm. relatively hard and just, uh, I don't know. So tell me about when you joined the CHARGE program at UC. Yeah, CHARGE. Um, so what is CHARGE, by the way? Oh, it's uh, Changing Health Attitudes and Actions to Recreate Girls is what it stands for. So Super bossy. I just felt like I, I just wanted to join something. I, was, I, I, I can make friends, but I just am not super outgoing. I don't go out there and just introduce myself and just get in someone's face and just like try to make friends with them mm-hmm. on the spot. Um, but you know, I just I joined something because I wanted to be a part of something bigger. I wanted to improve my health, my well-being, in every facet of life. So I just found them and I just jumped right into it. I don't think I knew anybody in the group at first, but I just kind of just went with it. Yeah, that's pretty ballsy move. That's yeah, cool I mean, to do something for yourself. Yes. And then, let's see. And then you joined the Mountaineering Club. I did. What was your inspiration for doing that? Um, I guess through college, um, it's not like I ever, I didn't feel overly stagnant, but I just had this overwhelming just feeling that there's something bigger and better out there that I had not experienced for myself yet. Mm-hmm. Um, while I had a, you know, while I loved college and I loved Cincinnati and everything like that, I found myself with an Instagram full of these awesome adventure accounts with all these surreal photos that um, of lives and adventures and cool things that I never thought I'd ever be able to see. So I just kind of lived vicariously through those accounts. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, after dreams, charge, you can say in a way, <laughs> daydreams, but in your hand. Essentially, yeah. yeah. So. That's what kind of sparked it. I had a very extreme interest in traveling. Um, not that I hadn't ever really done much of anything. So um, I saw that the Mountaineering Club existed, and I joined in just by myself one day after school. Um, walked across campus on my own, walked in there, sat in the corner, um, listened to what they had to say, and it was just like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And I ended up learning that t- that day that they had like one opening for a trip to Colorado. So, you know. One for you. You know, long story short, I was just like, all right, <laughs> let's do it. And so I just said, hey, you know, these eight people that I had no idea who they were, um, they let me go on the, or like I was accepted to go on the trip. And I just, that was just like the first major step of, you know, I guess my independence of going out and doing something I wasn't normally comfortable yeah. with doing. So at the time you were still living with your parents and you never moved out of your parents' house. Yeah, still living at parents' house at the time. Awesome. I mean, it's a smart thing to do, by the way. Totally smart. It was okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> looking back now, we all would have done it a lot differently, you know. So, I think you won on that one. Um, so, do you think that was a big motivation that made you, that um, inspired you to move out west later on in life? Yeah, certainly. It uh, it started with traveling. Um, you know, I've never really known a thousand percent what I wanted to do with myself. I always just know that I wanted to help people. I always wanted mm-hmm. to you know, do something bigger than what I knew or what I was familiar with. Yeah. So that, that first trip out to Colorado just kind of helped, you know, kind of spark that and really um, 
you know, get myself out there, step out of my comfort zone. You know, I drove many, many hours with a group of people I had never met before. And just kind of, that was kind of the beginning of just... You made it work. I'm sure they loved you, for real. I'm sure they all fell in love with you. You were making oh, everybody laugh. laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and so modest. And so modest. <laughs> so then after that, so then you graduate school, and then you eventually move out, out west. So where do you move to? Yes. Um, so I ended up joining the AmeriCorps VISTA program. Okay. I uh, applied to a handful of jobs after college, uh, spent the summer traveling a bit, and then I just decided to really, you know, start looking for jobs, getting serious about my next life steps. Mm -hmm. um, one of my friends introduced me to AmeriCorps. I ended up applying to, you could apply up to like 10 jobs. So five were in Ohio, and then five were in some sort of dream locations that I never thought I'd actually go to and fulfill. Um, I ended up being accepted to a couple in Ohio, some teaching ones, and then I went one a handful accepted um, out west. One of them was Phoenix, and um, I don't something about it just like really stuck out to me, and I just decided to say just screw it, let's just go with it. Yeah, and I accepted it, and I had from the point of accepting that job or that volunteer position, a volunteer I, position, a volunteer position. A vol yeah. A volunteer position, so I had like a month from that moment that I found out that I got it to pack up everything and get comfortable with the fact that the first time I was going to move out of my parents' house, it was just going to be 2,000 miles away, so I guess go big or go home. Yeah. That's my motto there. So when you landed in Phoenix, how long did it take you to get a bed? <laughs> Roughly a, a month. <laughs> I did a lot of, I tried preparing the best I could, but you know, when you're in AmeriCorps, the you get a living stipend. It's not like a paycheck yeah. or anything like that. So what were you like sleeping on the couch, sleeping on a friend's couch? I slept on the floor. Awesome. <laughs> I, uh, but I was okay with it. I just like, it's a new adventure. And I've just always been kind of a go with the flow type of person. I like to think. Yeah. Um, so especially then, cause I just knew just accept anything that were to come up. So I was desperately trying to look for a place to live. I ended up finding a room, um, but all I did was I packed all my stuff that I could fit in my little RAV4 mm -hmm. um, with Jane and my Jane. mom and my aunt and just traveled across the country. So everything that I could fit in that little car, that's what I brought with me. So I ended up sleeping. When I finally found a place, I didn't have a bed, so I just slept with my sleeping bag and my... Uh, my uh, sleeping bag and my... Oh my God, my sleeping pad. Your sleeping pad, yeah. yeah. And just a hump of blankets on the floor. And that was it. That's all you needed, though. And that's all it. And so um, during that time, you started hiking on the weekends and going on these trips. Yes. By yeah. yourself. Well, you and Jane. Jane was with me, yes. You and Jane, yeah. Yeah, and again, like, I would join, I again, went out of my comfort zone, not overly outgoing, and if I just happened to meet someone, then fantastic. But... Uh, Jane and I just started going on trips every single weekend. I just like I live in the coolest place ever, mm -hmm. and I just might as well t take advantage of it. So at the time, I was only supposed to be there for a year because it's a year commitment. I assumed I don't know, I might come back afterwards. Another opportunity might arise. So I just had the mindset that if I'm here for a year, I'm gonna just live it up the best I can and yeah. just do whatever, just see as much as I can while I'm here. So take every single weekend, we'd go on a different camping trip, find a different. Um, spot in Arizona within a few hours 
Yeah. Um, my parents definitely did not enjoy this part, and sometimes I didn't tell them, but you know, I would go sleep in my car in a cool camping spot with Jane. Heck Best yeah. memories of my life. So. Me too, dude. Me too. <laughs> Nobody understands it. We get it. No one understands it. <laughs> Sleeping in your car is also incredibly underrated. I'm sure Christopher understands as well, and Hannah. <laughs> but like, I did it all over the country. Best days of my life, for sure. So during that time, I mean, you were making your daydreams come true. Your yeah. Instagram account then became what you wanted it to be. Yeah, a little bit at a time. Um, just started seeing c more and more cool places. Yeah. And I just kind of, that was the very beginning of just making that whole dream a reality. Yeah. I might not have had those like really amazing pictures quite yet that I wanted, but um, it was certainly a start. And I was certainly just like learning so much about myself, just being out there and taking all those chances and seeing new parts of the world that I'd never seen before, meeting people I'd never met. Obviously. Yeah, making memories. Yeah. And then so you had been at AmeriCorps for like a year plus, right? And then your friend Truthy introduced you to someone. Or how exactly did you meet Alex? I met Alex about six months into the program. Okay. So um, it was one of those... You know, he was hired on to one of the um, like sister organizations that we work with. So not directly, but... Um, he was part of the, the group with, that would meet quarterly. And his first day happened to be on a day that we had one of those quarterly meetings. So, um, you know, nothing like super magical the first day that I met him or saw him. But I know that um, I cert he certainly caught my eye across the room. Like, you know, um, just definitely just seemed like an interesting person. I, I mean, I learned, later learned that he, I seemed like an interesting person to him. And it just kind of sparked like a... Like a pretty quick friendship. It was your resting boss face. My resting boss face did That's it, I what guess. what it was. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. so, then, um, so then when did you two become an, an item, a love item? Um, I guess that's after Shruti decided to, she wanted uh, us all to get together because, you know, we worked with, um, there weren't many people that were around our age. So um, she ended up having us all go out one night um, I don't even know, a couple months after that or a month or so mm -hmm. after that, um, which is when we sat down um, at some, like, bar, restaurant, whatever, and just really when we just knew it all just sparked instantly, it was, we just sat down. It was the first time we talked face-to-face, -face, really, and it was just like we had known each other for years upon years and years, and so that was definitely the first moment that we knew it was just like, Oh, all right, well, that's intense. This, definitely one of those, like, all right. <laughs> like, when you know, you know type situations. Yeah. yeah, when you know, you know. Yep. And so that was, you'd been there for six months, saw a picture, and you finally got a bed. I did have a bed at that point, yeah. Living the high life. Food time, but it was a bed. Yeah, the <laughs> baby steps here. One breath at a time, one day yeah. at a time. <laughs> and, you know, your job was going great. And then you meet Alex. And then you guys dated for... A while, and it was pretty good. Yeah, it was excellent. We um, ended up like two and a half years, obviously up to like this point. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he was definitely my absolute best friend. He was such a awesome guy, and a, it was a perfect situation in which we met, and we just lived life to the absolute fullest. It was awesome. But he was a giver as well. What was his background? Um, he is an Army veteran. Mm -hmm. um, he also grew up in an uh, army family, so he was used to traveling all across the country. 
you know, living in many different states, Colorado, Pennsylvania, um, Kansas, Virginia, a little bit of everywhere, California. Yeah. And what was his position when you met him? Um, he was... He was a crisis response person, so he'd like he'd like answer the the phone when veterans would call in for resources. So he was basically like a caseworker, and he would just take calls all day, every day, for veterans in the local um, or all around Phoenix needing any sort of resources. Yeah, good guy. Did you get along with his family? Yes, yes, his family is all wonderful. Um, they're still, they're out in California, so we would definitely make trips to go see them all the time. Mm -hmm. They were obviously a little bit closer than Ohio family, so um, yeah, we had an amazing time. Joe and Ruth out there with, uh, and their dogs, and with their wonderful backyard, we just make our favorite thing, one of our favorite things was to go visit them and spend long weekends out there, and yeah, they're awesome people. Did Jane like it out there? Uh, I think she wouldn't have been mad if I left her out there. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you guys got, you and Alex got a dog together. Yes. Yeah, we both had a dog when we met. So he had Gunner, I had Jane, and then uh, then Nora came along, my little cat and dog baby. Hmm. She's a cutie. She is a cutie. I also got my pants incredibly filthy, and I did not care at all. It was worth it. <laughs> I know. It's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so did you ever take the dogs to go visit with um, Alex's parents? All the time. I think that, I'm pretty sure they grew to know the term grandma and grandpa's and they'd get so <laughs> amped and they would, you know, they knew as soon as we started packing up eggs to go anywhere, whether it was for an adventure or for grandma and grandpa's house, yeah. they instantly knew. They got so excited and they would just, you know, they knew. As soon as we reached like a certain point and like, you know, we got off the highway, we'll roll the windows down and they just knew they, it, they loved it there. They're just as smart as you are. Did you guys go on adventures together? You, Alex, and the dogs? Or just you two? Or It was almost Joe? always me, Alex, and all the dogs. Yeah. We almost never, we barely ever left them behind. Yeah. They just, they wouldn't, they would never forgive us. So you guys were living in Phoenix. So like, would you guys go camping in places like, like a, and that's in the desert. So you guys went camping in the desert often? Very, yes, all the time. Um, Pretty much every weekend, we'd find something new to do. Um, it might not always be camping, but we'd find a new cool place that we'd see either on Instagram or um, somewhere that we'd see that we'd read it about in a book or saw on TV or something that someone recommended to us. So we'd always make a point to go see something new every weekend and do some hiking or camping, whatever we could do. Okay. Do you have a favorite trip that sticks out in your mind that you guys really liked? Oh, we've been on so many. Um, he loved planning these uh, s like secret trips. I wasn't allowed to know where we were going, but it was like usually a really long weekend, and yeah. we would, uh, you know, he would plan where we were going. I was not allowed to know. We'd leave like super early in the morning. Um, so my favorites were just like in the past year. We saw upwards of like eight different national parks just within the last year. Oh man! So one in October was you know we went to. Uh, we saw Yosemite, Kings Canyon, Sequoia. Sequoia. Yeah. Um, well, that was because, well, during COVID, because fast forward in COVID, you guys were living together right. in Tucson. Your jobs changed a little bit. You're working for the um, the Army National Guard. Yes. And he was working uh, for Congress. Yes, he worked uh, as a veterans liaison for the congressman down in Tucson, Congressman Grijalva. Okay. And so you guys... 
Um, Congressman, what is his name again? Grahalva. Grahalva. Yeah. Okay. And then so you eventually went to go move with him. Yes. Okay. And life there was still just as good? Just as many adventures? Oh, yeah, even better. Because we got, we had a little desert oasis house. We had a little backyard. The dogs could go out at any time, sunbathe in the morning like they like to do. Um, We lived right by Saguaro National Park, which was super awesome. Nice. So, yeah, we just got to be, you know, we lived, you know, obviously we lived together during COVID when everything was locked down. We were working from home. And like most people would maybe kill their significant other in that mm-hmm. in that instance, but we had so much fun. We could have done it for like years upon years, and we joked all the time that we'd probably need counseling for like separation anxiety or something <laughs> whenever we had to go back to work. But we had so much fun, and we yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, did you think you were gonna marry him? Yes, um, definitely. We had concrete plans of doing that. I know that. What makes everything slightly more terrible? I know he was stopping around for rings. I know we had definitely had planned like an ex- a very detailed elopement, and in Valley of the Gods, um, Valley of the Gods in Utah, um, we talked about it almost since the beginning of our relationship. Just you know, like I said, one of those instances where you just know. Mm-hmm. So we definitely talked about that. And so we're. Tonight, talking about what happened, where you were two months ago, on April 7th. It's not June 7th. And that was right around Easter. Yes, so Easter a weekend. After Easter. So Easter weekend, you guys were going on an adventure, like you always do. Yes. And what did you guys have planned? Um, this time, we left the dogs at Ruth and Joe's house. Um, Alex's parents Alex's in California. Alex's parents' house, yes. Okay. Because um, we had been talking about going to Death Valley National Park as just one of the many on our bucket list, mm-hmm. and you know national parks are strict with animals, so we obviously didn't want to break any of those rules. We wanted to be able to freely roam and see all of these things that we wanted to see. So we left early Saturday morning to go um, from Ruth and Joe's house to Death Valley, and we arrived in the morning. And the plan was just to. You know, spend only one night backcountry camping and seeing all of, like, the main attractions that um, you want to see at Death Valley. Okay, so this weekend, so you guys, you went to go visit Alex's parents for Easter weekend, and then you guys got there on Friday, and then Saturday morning, you're like, we're going to go camping in Death Valley for one night, and we will be back tomorrow night for dinner, for yep. Sunday Easter dinner. Yep, they were making Easter dinner. We were going to be back by, you know, they only lived a couple hours away, like I said, so um, we were going to go back, just spend, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever, and be back by Easter dinner on Sunday. And so, you, all right, so then you get to, you get to Death Valley at 11 a.m., and you go sightseeing and do the things. Yeah, and then the did things. you know you're, where you're going to camp yet? Uh, no. Um, I think this kind of goes back to the kind of intuition thing that I we talked about before. Uh, just whenever we go camping, we don't, sometimes we have ideas of where we'd like to go and we pick out on like Google Earth or something what looks, what might look cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and we knew exactly what backcountry roads we wanted to go on. We knew uh, we got some recommendations from the park rangers and everything. So we had a general idea, but you know, we don't normally know until we see it. And then just you just kind of know. This is where we're going to be. Okay. And there were designated camp spots, so you wanted to be yes. at a designated camp spot. Yes. Okay. And so you found yourself driving, because Death Valley is 3,000 square miles of pretty much desolate, vast desert. Yes. That is extremely hot. 
And so in April, it was on average 95 degrees the majority of the day. Yes. Right now, me. today, I checked the weather. It's 103 there right now. So it's a very hot place. Yes, it is. And no shade, obviously. Very little shade. <laughs> so on Saturday, when you guys found yourself driving, what happened? Well, we were driving on a backcountry road. We had seen a few things earlier that day, and it was, you know, later after in the afternoon, we decided to go find a backcountry camping spot, and one of the recommendations given to us by the, um, the park rangers, um, we were just driving on a backcountry road in my, my fairly newer car that I had just recently gotten, and it's nothing like any road that we, you know, we'd always driven on these kinds of roads before, so it was nothing out of the ordinary um, so when we were driving on this backcountry road we, uh, to try to find a camp spot, we all of a sudden heard two huge like pops, and instantly my heart dropped. I'm like, I don't know what that was. We stopped, we got out, and saw that the... Who knows what it was? I didn't even see in the road anything that would have indicated this, but there was apparently a rock a little bit further back sticking out of the side of the road that had punctured both of my tires, both my passenger side tires. Okay. Just totally just split them in half. Not in half. Just split them. Yeah. And you had one tire, you know, so yeah. you're stranded. Yes, only one spare. So that obviously wouldn't have done much, us much good. And so this is 5.30 on Saturday night. So what did you guys do after that? Because you were pretty far from, from where you wanted to camp and from mm -hmm. any other civilization. Right, and we were at least, like, uh, if, you, if we were to backtrack on the road that we were on, it was about probably 30 miles at the very least to get to any sort of civilization or any sort of main road to maybe find some civilization. So the main road, once again, 3,000 miles of desert. The main road is hundreds of miles of nothing as it is. So 30 miles back to the main road, which has which is, I mean, maybe safe to say 100 miles to anything after that anyway. It's, it's, it's quite far, and it's, uh, the route that we were taking was all, you know, zero shade, zero vegetation. I mean, there's some vegetation, but no shade, no food, no water, definitely nothing that would have been beneficial. But you guys, I mean, but Alex was a vet, so he had a lot of survival tactics. Yes, and you guys absolutely. had done, like, done a bunch of stuff in the, in the, hiked a bunch in the desert and slept there, so what did you guys do? Once you knew you're stuck. I think this is when like survival mode step one kicked in and we just knew that we needed to do something because um, we knew we couldn't fix a tire. We knew we were stranded. We knew we were extremely far from anybody or anything. Um, so we spent the remainder of that evening like hours. We had maps spread out. We had books open, just anything that we had because we always came prepared with you know, everything that you might need that you never want to have to use, but just in case, you know, we had just bought, bought one of, like, the big maps from the gift shop, and we had all these maps spread out, and we were just, like, trying to devise plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then, like, sub-plan one, two, three, four, five under each of those. So we spent the whole evening uh, planning out all the different routes that we could have possibly gone um, or anything that we could have possibly done to, you know, help ourselves or just get out of the situation. I spent the whole night doing that, and uh, after and finally deciding on one, we you know packed our bags and you know, just like a little day pack, uh, at least three liters of water each, and you know a couple of bags of tuna each, and first aid kit, and anything that we might need for just the, like a one day little 
hike or trek to see what we can find or see what help we can find. So you guys then picked a you guys picked a plan. Yes. Amongst other backups of the backups of backups. And then did you just go to sleep? Yeah, we knew that we had a long day ahead of us the next day. Okay. Um, so we definitely wanted to get sleep. We went to bed, went to bed pretty early that evening. Um, we just wanted to preserve all of our energy, and we knew we were going to get up super early in the, the next morning. Were you scared at all at this point? Uh, we were, but also weren't, because we just, you know, we have a lot of faith in each other. We had a lot of, you know... We knew that we could get through a lot of hard stuff together. So, you know, we were scared. We knew the possibility and the realness of the situation. But at the same time, you know, part of you needs to not panic to the sense where you can't function. So we were, you know, we were worried. But at the same time, we were just going with the flow of things and, you know, just what happens next. So the next morning, you wake up at 4 a.m. and you trek out on your designated plan, which is what? Yes, we... um, Woke up before the sun, way before the sun came up, because it's just not something you want to to mess with, obviously in the park, because you know in the desert it's so dry and the the sun will just take all the water right out of your body without even you won't even notice you're sweating. Mm-hmm. Um, so left super early in the morning and we just went on the route that we had chosen, which was through a mountain pass, and you know we were just planning on seeing what. You know, what might lie ahead? Because this route, while through a mountain pass on a designated trail, um, you know, we just, we didn't know what was, what lie ahead. So the plan was just to see what might, we might run across. If we can make it through, then fantastic. And so how many, how many miles was it? Because it was either 25 miles back to a road that leads to nothing, pretty much. And, or how many miles through a canyon? The way that we ended up going, it would probably only be like five to seven miles it's like to, to the road. Have, where it's a definite that? main road that people come in and out of the park on. Okay. And that's like, you guys have done that many times. Yes. Yeah. And you'd be, and this also is a designated, this is a designated route on the map that yes. you have. So, you know, it's not ideal, but it's, it's established. It's established. That gave us a lot of hope in, you know, knowing that. I know we we we, not, we might not know what's what lies ahead, but at the same time, you know, it gives us a little bit of hope that we're on a main main road, not a main road, uh, backcountry established road, and we're also heading to an established trail. So that gave us like enough hope to just think that something might be ahead that can help us out. So you leave at four a.m. and what did you guys? You wrote stuff on your car. What did you guys? What were your survival tactics? Yes, that one hundred percent ended up being um, what ended up getting us found. I think. Um, was them locating my car. Now, they didn't locate it until, like, Thursday, I believe. But that morning, and this is especially um, Alex's... This is Sunday morning. Yes, Sunday Sunday morning, morning. Easter Sunday. Um, So right before we headed out, we wrote all over the car, just just in case, in case anyone were to find it or run across it while we were out. Um, They would know generally, like, where, what direction we were heading, who we were, and what the deal was. So, wrote on the back and all the dirt. Uh, I wrote a note um, and stuck it in my windshield wiper in the front and, you know, just gave emergency contacts, who we were, where we were headed, how much water we had, just to give a general, you know, idea. You know what you're doing, yeah. Right. Did you have any cell phone service? Zero. We spent the whole night 
prior to that, before we headed out on Sunday, you know, trying to find any, we went up this butte to see if it would potentially have any sort of cell, cell service, and there was just, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. So then you guys um, head off on the track. We head off on the track next morning at 4 a.m. And yeah. what was that like? Um, it was, the moon was super, super bright. I remember that. Um, and we knew we were on like a very serious life or death mission, but at the same time, it, it also felt like a normal hike. Uh, you know, it was like pretty dark outside, obviously, but at the same time, it was just, it was very strange dynamic because I remember we were talking about it. You know, it felt like a normal hike, but you know, we at the same time, we were discussing, yes, like we were still enjoying what was around us and enjoying the scenery, but um, we knew that there was no guarantee of safety until we reached that road or until we found somebody. Yeah. You said that Alex was um, logic, like his logic to an annoying fault. A very annoying fault, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Always logic, which makes it great. It, yes, a great it, it obviously so helped out a lot. Um, yeah, you know, we not only wrote it on the, on the car, wrote on the car, but in addition to that, you know, wrote in the sand on the ground and built these rock arrows, just to make sure that just in case anything with the car wiped off or flew away, that at least they would see like an abandoned car there in the middle of the road, and then they'd at least be able to see, you know, there's rock arrows built into the ground. Indicating yeah. which way we went, and then as soon as we got to the trail, we built those cairns, stacks yeah. of rocks, to indicate which route we went from there. Legit, legit SOS. Um, you guys also found geocache along the way, which geocache is a like container along um, hiking trails that are visited rarely, where people like le leave messages and records of who was there and what time. So it's like a like a law, like a logbook. Essentially, basically a logbook where you can leave like little treasures or whatever you might want to leave in there. But the one we found also gave us additional hope. I'm like, okay, cool. Then this is, we knew it was a trail, but at the same time, we're like, people have been here. That's gonna make you feel not as alone, right? You know, like okay, oh my God. not so bad. I, I took a moment. I opened yeah. the box. I flipped through all the pages and you know read through all of the the entries in there, which ranged anywhere from 2012 to 2020. So, you know, I knew it was well-traveled. I knew that, you know, people have used it for a long time. Um, and reading through it, it just all noted the gorgeous foliage in, in that canyon, because, you know, we were going down like a spring, it was Slot Canyon, where the, it's more likely to have water. So um, there was a little bit of springs in there, and, you know, everyone was noting the gorgeous yellow wildflowers and all the green, because which is pretty rare in yeah. this kind of environment. And so what time was it at this point? Um, this must have been about 8 o'clock okay. that we ran across here. The sun was mostly out, and we had found that thing, and it gave us a little bit more hope, knowing that, okay. So you guys continue to hike, and the hike gets more intense? Yeah, slightly more intense. And so... What, what, what is the surface like that you're walking on? Um, there's giant walls on either side of us, just huge rock walls. So there's no way left, no way right. We're just traveling down this, you know, basically slot canyon. Um, and a slot canyon is a narrow wet pathway between two. Basically, big, two, yeah, between, between two, two mountains. mountains. Um, so, you know, the, the terrain was mostly rocky, you know, like... Um, 
like the size of your fist and above size rocks. So, uh, you know, some some smooth, some not, but um, it wasn't so, nothing crazy. So then did you guys feel confident? So what happens next? We just, uh, after we found that geocache, we, you know, still were understanding that anything could happen at that point, but we just kept going on. Um, and then one mention in that book said something about a 70-foot waterfall, which I was like, oh, you know, we saw it, we're like, cool. That sounds, that sounds cool. I guess we'll see it when we get there. And that ended up being no more than maybe like a half mile to a mile continued down that little path that we were on. Um, and when we got there is when we realized this is probably our stopping point because... Um, there is no easy way up, down. It just, it's a pretty solid drop from that point. Now, it was an established hiking. I'm sorry. It was an established climbing route. Okay. So With harnesses were, and ropes, yeah, which that, you guys do not have. Yeah, that definitely required harnesses and ropes. We saw that. We acknowledged that. And we were very carefully trying to see if by chance there was any way down because there's certainly way, sometimes ways down without having to actually do the climb. So we just took the time to very caref carefully, cautiously make sure that there was nothing, no other way we could go before either stopping and waiting it out for the day or heading back to where the car was. So you decided to forge on. Yeah, we decided to forge on. That's when we, um, you know, once we approached it, we were looking for any possible way down. Um, when it looked like there was no other way down, um, Alex wanted to find, there was like a big boulders that kind of made steps part of the way down this cliff. So that's when he wanted to go um, check it out. I said, please, just like no unnecessary risks. We would repeat that like the whole time. Just take it slow, one step at a time. No unnecessary risks. Um, we'll, we'll get out of here. Just, you know, take it easy. Be careful. Mm -hmm. So... He started to work his way down a little bit, and I just kind of sat back at that point because I wasn't overly confident that we'd have any way down. Um, and so I, I was just sitting back and just taking a break for a minute, and uh, that's when he said, all right, I can't really find anything else. I can't find a way down, so I'm going to work my way back up. And I could pretty much see him the whole time. He was only like five feet, maybe like five feet below where the ground was. So... Um, I said, all right, I just, you know, continued to wait. And it wasn't much longer after that when he announced that he had lost his grip uh, coming up. I lost my grip. Yes. He uh, had announced he lost his grip. And I said, what do you mean you lost your grip? And at that point, it's, the panic kind of set in because, um, you know, deep down, I, what, I think I knew that this was not going to end well. But at the same time, I was really... I went into total, not panic, but just like, helping survivor mode and like s sprinted to him the best I could. I was only a few feet away, but um, quickly tried to find anything that I could possibly give him to throw him or like um, help him up. But it just, it was not long after that when he fully lost his grip, probably no more than 10 seconds after he announced that, where he did lose his grip and he ended up falling um, all 70 feet of that waterfall. So that is when, obviously, the whole trip got wildly serious. Did you see him fall? Yes, unfortunately. Um, 
I had to see here in every, every every part of it, and I knew that is when it was just. I really, I barely have the words. I just knew that survivor mode, you know, like 3.0 at this point is when I really had to kick it in. Um, obviously, I was beside myself and I was trying to think very quickly what to do. And I made the very quick decision because a few minutes prior, I had seen, um, you know, this, this canyon's like no more than maybe 30 feet across. And he had fallen down the right side. But a few minutes prior to him falling, I had seen a really steep but also a potential way down down the left side that allowed for a kind of a, there was like a body crack. So I was able, it was very steep, but I figured, okay, this is going to be the way I go down because it's, it's going to allow me to do a controlled fall. It's going to allow me to get down there relatively safely. Mm-hmm. And because I, I had no doubt in my mind, all I wanted to do was be down there with him. And I knew that would probably risk my life completely, but uh, I knew that's just what I had to do. So I could have either sat there panicked, I could have backtracked miles and miles, or I could just obviously be there and be with him and help him in whatever way that I could. So um, that's what I ended up doing. I, as soon as he fell, I worked my way over to that left side and I you know, did the down climb. Um, that allowed me to just like hold my lay or hold my arms on either side and just very carefully work my way down. So I worked about halfway down, um, but when there was about 30 feet left, um, is when there was nowhere else to grab onto and I couldn't do anything else. So um, I dropped my backpack, hoping maybe it might break a fall or help me in any capacity. Um, and that's when I just half lost my grip, half let go because that's just what I had to do. And as soon as I landed, that's when my ankle just snapped right in half. <laughs> it was, uh, I landed straight on my feet. So I, it was an absolute miracle that I ended up not breaking or injuring anything else. I just did like a really quick check of myself. Like I know I didn't hit my head. I know I didn't hit my, my, mo- my fingers were moving. My toes were moving. Or at least my, my right foot was moving. Um, but this, obviously this one was just totally cracked. I knew that I was worried at that moment because, uh, I, that I had a compound fracture, but there was no way of knowing because I had on like tall socks, boots, pants. I just knew that was not my worry at the moment. My worry was him and being with him. Was he still alive? He was. So as soon as he fell, um, amazingly, despite the absolutely treacherous fall that he suffered. Um, he was obviously, call- he was calling out for help and just asking me to go get help. And so, you know, I guess long story short from that moment, the moment he fell, he was uh, alive probably a ha- only a half hour after that. It was pretty obvious that he had, had some, suffered some severe injuries in a lot of ways. Um, you know, pelvis, arm, I just, I know that he had, Probably ruptured his uh, his lung or two. Um, and you were there. I was that. there. And your foot was it? Your foot in a lot of pain. Could, um, could you tell the pain at the time?
Are you okay? Yeah, I'm totally fine. We're not going to continue you sure? until you're okay. Totally Can someone please get her a water? No, you're okay. <laughs> Are you okay? She's smiling. Okay, I think, I think we're, are you ready to move on, Emily? Yes, I apologize, the story is not an easy one <laughs> to listen to. Um, it's, I should have maybe, <laughs> a forewarning of it all, I know it's a... Uh, it's your story, it's your story. Yeah, I don't know, it's a lot. Um, I think, and I think I'm able to keep some sort of composure because um, it's. I think the shock factor is still just like a thousand percent. Um, so yeah, I apologize for the possibly graphic details that are well, in some of the story. You're still in a booth, so this was two months ago. Yes. Are you okay telling the story right now? Just two months, two months later. Um, somehow, somehow I am. Um, I think, obviously, I had a, a lot of time after the accident occurred to sit and think and ponder and question everything. Um, so obviously, I'm not going to like go into any extreme details of it all, but obviously, like he lasted about half hour. He passed a half hour later, and this all, all this happened by like about 10 a.m. on Easter Sunday. Um, so from that point, after he passed, I had to figure out what to do. Um, obviously, there was a lot of time of just total denial. That did not just happen. There's, there's no way this is happening. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of things that occurred just in like in terms of survival skills within that time. So um, if you put the timeline together, um, he passed and the accident happened. Everything happened by Sunday at 10 a.m. And the first on our little maybe 100, 200 square foot cliff, um, I was stuck in that one single spot for six days until I was found and rescued on Friday. How big was the spot compared to the stage that we're sitting on right here, from that wall to the end of the stage here? It was probably from that wall to that wall, and then maybe from where we're sitting, maybe to the front, not even to the start of the bar, maybe the end of the, probably the end of the um, dance floor area. Or like this wooden area up here. Okay. So not 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 large. And so you realize, I'm here because at the end of this rectangle that you're in, there's another drop of there how many is. feet. There is. Yes. Um, so to kind of paint a picture of 
what that was like. So we were traveling down, and like I said, there's no way left, no way right. We're going down this slot canyon or like this canyon, and that's the only way. Um, and where we had fallen from was about like a 70-foot fall. There was like a tiny waterfall. It's Death Valley National Park. There's not much water. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was that 70-foot fall. There was our cliff. And then I knew, because I was, after he had passed, I was obviously beside myself. I was trying to figure out what to do. I don't even like fully remember, or I can, can't really form comprehensive thoughts at that time. But I remember seeing and noticing that beyond our cliff was a another 100 plus foot cliff. So despite broken ankle, whether or not I had that going on or not, there wasn't there wasn't going anywhere. And it was just straight up hoping and praying that someone would find us eventually. At that point. What how hopeful were you? Um the first twenty four hours, um I don't know if like hopeful was in my vocabulary at the time. It's not that I was not hopeful, but it was just um, uh, 24 hours of just complete um, disbelief and um, I don't even know. Uh, Disbelief and obviously extreme grief and denial and um, I don't know, guilt. You know, I dealt with a whole bunch of uh, at least 24 hours at that point of just if we would have done this, this would have happened. If we could have done this, this would have happened. He'd still be here. Or, if, you know, I just went through a whole, the whole slew of things that I could have and should have done that we could have and should have done. Um, but I knew, you know, that was not going to get me out of there. It's going to be more detrimental than anything. So that, for, so that first night, um, so that happened at 10 a.m. You had all day. Yes. And then you're able to fall asleep. And the day's a blur. And you did fall asleep. And what was going, what happened the next morning when you woke up on Monday? Um, you know, I, uh, m- once Monday rolled around, once like the, the sun came back up, um, you know, I woke up and, like looked around I'm like this <laughs> this is still real I'm still here um and I just had to just do anything do what I could so you know the the moment he passed I guess going back the moment bef- like the moments before he passed I'm thinking in my head there's literally zero way and I think I knew that he wasn't going to make it obviously he wasn't doing overly well um and I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to survive if he doesn't survive. But there was something that like clicked as soon as I know that he did pass, was that um, like I have to get us out of here, and I have to just like do whatever I need to do to get us out and get me out and just be somewhere safe. So you know, fast forward, I guess Monday, woke up. It was still real, um, and that's pretty much the end of all the, the, the feelings of um, doubt and grief and guilt and all that stuff. Um, that's when I knew that I just really had to get to work almost because I'm not, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. There's nowhere I can go. So I did anything that I could possibly think of to 
keep myself safe and keep myself taken care of. Um, thankfully, he had, I guess, a few more things in his bag that I was able to um, get, like water, an additional three liters of water, an additional couple things of food, you know. Um, in I, his bag. Yes, in his bag, um, which he had. So I was obviously, I was absolutely dreading every moment of that, but I just knew I had to get us out. And if I wanted to do that, I had to get his supplies too. Um, and at that point I had already, you know, I had scooted over to like this place where I felt safe against like this totally vertical um, rock wall. Because you couldn't walk. I could not walk. My, I have not walked for a couple months now, but um, yeah, from that moment was the first time I just, I could not walk. My foot was, you know, it was obviously, it was in pain, but like not more manageable than you would think. Cause like your, my body just took over an autopilot, mm -hmm. completely took over on autopilot. And uh, I just knew that I had to do whatever I needed to do to um, keep myself. I just knew I had to keep myself out of the sun. I knew I had not long until the sun would creep up um, among the like slot canyon that I was in. So, so you got um, the belongings out of Alex's bag and you were able to get some water and um, and what else did you, what else did you get out of the bag? Um, just a, like a microfiber towel. There wasn't a whole lot, but just you know like a knife, anything that I could possibly use. It ended up the, the most valuable items obviously were um, you know the water, the food. That's all that's what I cared about. That's what I knew that I needed to survive. And so to paint the picture, this place that she's on is not, um, you think of the desert, you think of like a clay um, um, a surface on the ground. It is sharp rocks. It, it, is not, it is like the type of rock that you see that you don't want to go by, that you tell your kids not to play on. I would say it's comparable to um, broken up cement on the side of a crumbled something. You know, it is, there's nothing calm about it. Just one large pile of rocks. There's no smooth surface. So nothing about that made it easy to maneuver. And it's not like I did a whole lot of that anyway, because I just know I needed to keep my leg as still as possible uh, while also, you know, staying hydrated, staying, you know, eating somewhat. So you, you built yourself a little bed because you're, you're used to sleeping on the floor. I, I was used to sleeping on the floor already. So I just went ahead and... Uh, I don't know, just somehow I just thought that it's not like it protected me much from anything other than just my own peace of mind. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, it felt safe. So I spent like that next day, shelter was like the one thing I know I needed. So I just built a, um, just like a rock cocoon around me. It was no more than like a foot high. Um, and I just did, there was obviously enough rocks just explaining what the terrain was like. There was enough around me where I could just, you know, sit where I was in my spot and then reach around to wherever, you know, just reach around to the, all the rocks and build my little shelter. And that's just, that is where I spent six entire days. That's where I slept. So at this point, um, were you... You're in survival mode, and were you thinking, how long did you think you were going to be there? Were you thinking forever? Were you, what was going on in your mind? 
there was a whole lot going on through my mind. Um, I think one of the most, the biggest blessings, if you can even call it that, of this, and I think maybe what helped me um, understand my thoughts and understand what was going on in my head was the fact I had packed a, a little solar panel um, and a phone charger. So it allowed me to keep my phone alive the whole time. And it's just for some reason, I just had so much going on in my head and I just had the idea on Tuesday of just writing down every thought that I had. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were infinite thoughts. I knew I had 100% will to get out of there, but I know that that completely relied on the search and rescue and whoever was out there doing the searching that was completely on anybody else and not me. So it was like, it was a situation completely out of my hands, out of my control. Um, There was nothing I could do about it but sit and wait. So I had a lot of hope and I had, um, I would tell myself over and over that we will get out of here. I'll get us out of here. I know I can't like do anything about it, but I will absolutely take care of us and I will get us out of here no matter what without dismissing the very real and stark reality of there's the, someone might not find us and I had to just kind of accept all of that too um, just knowing that I'm in such a desolate place that there's just it's it's hard to fathom how someone could find us there but so I kept or like my mind in check I kept my thoughts in check but at the same time um, you know, there's a reality that it wouldn't work out in my favor. What was the one thing you kept replaying in your head that you wanted in the future that you, what was replaying in your head over and over? I know that like one of the very first things I wrote, which I like revisited not that long ago, um, I just remember saying, I just want to be somewhere safe so bad. I don't care where it is. I don't care if it's like a hospital, obviously a hospital, but I would, I just want to be somewhere safe. I want my foot stable because I still had no idea what was going on with it. All I could see was just part of my shin, which was just completely black and blue and my foot, which I had no control over, which was completely, you know, obviously not doing very well. So, you know, there's still a possibility that I have an infection or, um, you know, a compound fracture where, you know, anything could have gone wrong. And so, this is Monday, and then you create your little bed, and then you're sleeping. And how many hours? How, um, how many hours was the sun beating on you? Because you were a crevasse, and the sun it's 95 degrees and sweltering. Yes, those were um, the times where the sun was out was the part of the day that I looked forward to the least because that was the part where, you know, I was way more apt to, you know, sunburn and dehydration and all of that. Um, But somehow I was able to find a a little nook that gave me probably the least amount of sunlight that I could have possibly gotten, which is exactly what I would want in that kind of situation. So, you know, I kind of calculated at that time. I knew at 1.30 p.m. is when the sun started to peek out of one side. And I had until 5.30 p.m. to just really um, just wait it out until the sun went behind the other rock. And that's, yeah, that's just kind of how I measured my days and how I was able to, that, I guess my, that was like my schedule. That became yeah. my schedule. Because um, you were there for 
Long enough to create a schedule. Long enough to create a schedule and know what I need to do at what time to avoid certain things. So, you know, I know I needed to, you know, 1 o'clock rolls around, 12.30 rolls around, and that's like when I did my one excursion of the day, which is, you know, I get out of my little rock structure, and I had dammed up a little part of the stream, just like five feet to my right, and uh, I knew that the... I just I could gather that the only way that I could get through the hottest part of the day um, was to just get that towel that I had gotten, mm -hmm. and I completely doused it in water, and I would just get my head wet. I got all my clothes wet, um, and that just that really helped keep my body temperature down. It kept me from sweating, and I think ultimately that's just one of the many decisions. I have no idea where it came from, but it obviously made a big difference, and it helped one of the many reasons to help keep me alive, 100%. And so that was like five feet away. Do you mind telling us how far away Alex's body was in comparison to the, yes. to the stream that you visited every day on your schedule? Yeah, the, um, like I said, the, the cliff was not big. Um, so there was probably no more than 15 feet between us the whole time at like the furthest amount. And it's, um, really, really crazy and surreal to think about because it's not something that you think that you can ever handle. Like, you never think that you can be around something like that, but just your body is incapable of, like, really, really crazy, incredible things when it knows that it needs to just survive. So no more than 15 feet um, from me. Um. Tell us about the Mylar blanket that you had in a survival kit, because you guys did have a, a survival kit that you had got on Amazon that you had with you. Yes, um, that is the next best thing that that ended up being my shelter. Like obviously, aside from my rock shelter, that you know, all it did was just provide like a block for my you know, when I laid down in it, I didn't have to like look at anything around me. I could just kind of like escape into my own mind or just look up at the sky without thinking about anything that was around me. So the Nylar blanket, like the emergency blanket that I had, um, it, I realized I think on Monday that I had it and I just, I could not have possibly been more excited because this was the only thing that I had to provide any sort of shelter. And I mean, it's designed for, um, you know, keeping you warm at night. It kept the sun off me during the day. Um, and I think the most valuable part of that whole thing was that it, I'm pretty sure, is what helped, um, you know, search and rescue when they finally came around on Thursday. I think that that's, because it's, it's orange, uh, orange. It's, uh, it's silver, it's reflective. So I'm, mm. that's what I also used and I, when I would first heard the helicopters come around. That's also what I used to just like wave up in the air like a crazy person. So obviously it was my shelter and it was also like the, the complete life-saving device that helped them find me. That kept ripping and so you kept putting band-aids on it. I did, I did that. Um, Cause that, that was like my only thing that I had to keep me safe for the most part and out of the sun. Cause I, it could have been so much worse. I could have had like, indescribable burns just from that, that sun yeah. that they haven't. Um, so it's, it's, very, it's a very fragile thing and it's not very thick. Um, so like I think the next day when it started ripping apart, I knew I had to keep it. I had to keep it in like kind of a body shape. 
so uh, to keep myself covered. So I had all these band-aids in my thing, and you know, by the end of that six days, I spent probably like an hour each day just trying to repair it. So it was completely covered in band-aids, and I don't know why I thought of that either. And I just I don't know if any other time I would have just said, oh, well, this blanket's useless now. But you know, I made it useful, and I made it last me the whole time. And it, that's just one of the many other reasons that I came out unscathed, if you can say that, unscathed in some ways. Well, on Tuesday, your foot was already incredibly broken. And um, what happened with like some of the life forms, like some life that you saw? Because you saw birds pass every once in a while. And um, so what happened on your foot? Um, as if things were not already terrible. Um, you know, Tuesday night rolls around, and, you know, in this rock shelter, I had also created, like, this rock splint, or just, like, I found rocks with a certain, like, um, angle to them that allowed me to keep my foot as stable as humanly possible, because I just know that's what I was, that I needed to do. Um, so I'm sleeping. It's, like, 10 p.m. It's completely dark outside. Um, and obviously, my foot is in a lot of pain. You know, I'm sleeping, and I'm woken up by this, like, really sharp pain on the outside of my ankle, the one that's broken. I try to adjust, and uh, but it happens again. I feel that same sharp pain. So I just, like, adjust, and I turn on my headlamp, and I look down. And of all things, um, a scorpion decided to find me and sting me in my ankle as if it was not already having issues. <laughs> You're so sweet. It found you. I know. Um, I think at, at this point, I also kind of was able to. I don't know. I don't know if, it, know if it's just like a tactic that makes me just feel better. But I was like, "Damn it, Alex!" <laughs> <laughs> like, you just like still finding ways to just get on my last nerve. He's like, "Emily, you're not having a hard enough time yet. <laughs> Here's a scorpion." So did that scorpion bite, did that pain, um, was it really, I mean, did it, at, the, at that point, what were you thinking then? That was, like, of all the things that I had been through at that point, like, scorpions are just notoriously not good, and you don't want them to sting you. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I'm like, that's it. <laughs> this is how I go. And I'm just, I just kind of like wait there. I'm like, I'm just, I'm waiting for any sort of venom to hit. I'm waiting for just something to happen. Um, I I guess it turns out that, I don't know if it was like my pants and my um, sock or the extreme swelling in my leg, but you know, ultimately nothing ended up happening from that other than like an extreme inconvenience. I guess I later learned that the scorpion, I don't know if the scorpions aren't venomous in that area or not as venomous, or maybe it helped that I just was already completely immobile, so my the blood flow wasn't getting as much around my body. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was just, but of course that had to happen. Was there any one point where you thought, I'm not going to make it? Um, I don't think that thought ever crossed my mind. Um, like I said before, like I knew that there was, I had so much hope and like, I just was praying so hard and just like 
trying to send like telepathic signals to my parents and try to send telepathic signals to like whoever was searching for us that I was like here and in this spot and I'm okay and they're just trying so hard to just I guess just ride out that time um, I don't think I ever thought for a second that I wasn't going to make it um, I just I told in the heart in the hardest of times which is you know, every other minute or so up there. I just said, or I reminded myself over and over and over again, you know, like I can do, because I had just finished a book like that Friday, um, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And like the one thing that stuck out to me most was just like the, you know, we can do hard things. So I'm like, yeah, Emily, <laughs> I can do hard things. And I just, it switched, it just turned into this like cycle in my head over and over and over and over again. Just, I can do hard things. I can do impossible things. I, like, amped it up a bit, because I'm like, this is pretty dang impossible. <laughs> I can do hard things, and, you know, just one breath at a time, one minute at a time, one, one hour, one week. But, of course, on the cliff, just we focus on one breath. One breath at a time, if I, and then if we can make it through that, we're good. We just keep, we keep going, and we just keep waiting it out, and... Uh, someone, someone will come eventually. Is there one moment, um, or just in general, what was the hardest part for you? Um, if there is everything. one. If there is one. <laughs> um, I don't even know if I can, like, pinpoint one. So this is Tuesday night. You get bit by the scorpion. Wednesday happens, and then Thursday, something great, seemingly great happens. Thursday is the day that gave me, like, all the hope that I needed to make it as long as I needed to out there. Um, that is the first day that I heard the propellers from a helicopter um, hovering. Um, and, you know, when I'm, I'm looking down, or I'm laying down, looking up at the sky 24-7, um, and I could just, there's like a sliver of sky. Like it, it's a it's a good amount that I could still see. But you know, I saw a helicopter coming from one direction, and I was like, oh my god! Like there they are. And now they were really far away still at that point. And I know that there was still some work to do on my end. And that's when I just I freaked out. And that's when I got probably the most emotional that I had been the whole time because I just. In my mind, it's it's hard to explain if you weren't there, if you didn't feel it, but like my brain was just in fight mode, complete fight or flight, complete um, survival mode. So um, that's when I just, you know, I just lost it. I'm like, oh my God, this is it. And I just, I scooted out. You know, all I could do was whenever I had to go anywhere, all I could do was just hold my foot up in the air. I used my hands, and my hand was very, very scraped up, so I had to had a lot of really big open wounds on my hand, so I had to wrap that up, which made it even more difficult to get from one place to another. Um, but when I did that, I moved out to the center of this little cliff, got my blanket, obviously, and I just I waved it around like crazy. They passed one time, not directly over me, but enough where I could see them. Probably 10, 20 minutes pass. And I hear it again, but it's louder, and it's coming from behind me. And that is when um, 
they just straight up, they must have seen my car at this point. I think at this point they had, someone had located, search and rescue had located my car. So I think that kind of helped narrow down where they were going to search for us. So after it had circled around, it came back and it came right above me and it started to lower. And that is the the moment that I knew 1,000% they saw me and 1,000% I saw them. And it just, it made, I can't even explain like the level of relief that that was. Um, and then what happened next? Um, they decided to leave. <laughs> they turned around and <laughs> they uh, just booked it out of there. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, I, I don't, you know, I still have adapted at this point. I have adapted like the strongest mindset. I never, ever thought that I could ever have. So what gave me extreme hope, just knowing that they saw me, there's literally no doubt in my mind that they, that yeah. they, they know where I am and that's all I could ask for. So, you know, I sit there, I'm like, this is it. They flew away, but I'm like, that was, that's a little weird. But um, I just sat there, and I had all my stuff packed, because as soon as I saw them, I like, packed it up, and I put it on my, on my backpack um, and just sat where it was kind of accessible. Um, you know, an hour passes by, two hours pass by, and I'm like, all right. <laughs> and uh, I just figured the sun was starting to come out at that point, so, you know, nearing that 1.30 time frame. So I really did not know, and I didn't want to mess with it. I didn't want to put myself in any unnecessary risk again. So uh, I went back to my little my little nook. Because at 1.30 is when the sun comes out, and it's also your routine time. That is my routine time. It's time to do, that to is, scooch over to the water. Scooch over to the water, get myself, douse myself in water, and just go back. I was able to tell myself, um, I'm sure there's a reasoning behind this. I'm sure they will be back because I know they saw me. That gut feeling. The gut feeling kicked in again, and that just, uh, the mindset was just knew that they would come back. Um, unfortunately, you know, hours and hours passed by still without hearing a single thing. But at that point, and uh, it's hard to explain this as well, but just uh, when you're in that situation, your body just shuts down any unnecessary function. So I ended up sleeping probably 80% of the time that I was up there. Um, you know, you have, your only activity is looking up at the sky and like looking at the clouds and like finding what kind of things you can see in the wall, like what kind of faces or like what kind of figures. That's, that's all you can do. So, you know, I slept a lot of the time. Um, so. And you wrote a lot. And I also wrote a lot. Yes. And so this is Thursday, and then they don't come back, and you fall asleep. Yeah, so I ended up, I ended up falling asleep. Um, but 7.30 rolls around, and I, I wake up because I hear a sound again, and it sounds like propellers, but it sounds like much smaller propellers. Um, so obviously I shoot up again, but um, like I shoot up in my spot, and I'm looking around, and I'll, I have a giant spotlight on me um, from some sort of aircraft way up in the air. turns out that they had sent a drone to, I guess, try to communicate with me mm -hmm. or something. Um, 
but that was, you know, verification number two. They saw me because they, you know, they were just up there. They were hovering and there was this huge spotlight on me and I just kept waving and trying to get their attention and just, I know that they had seen me, but I just kept waving. Were you ever angry while you're up there? Like, did this anger you that the rescue came and then they came again and you're still there? Um, I don't think, not angry. Now, after the drone left is when the, <laughs> when the annoyance set in. I'm like, because obviously, like, I'm trying to, I still try to make light of some things. I'm like, you could have, like, dropped me, like, a hamburger. <laughs> like, you could, anything. Because, like, I don't know, they, there's no way of them knowing if I'm, like, obviously I'm moving, but there's no way that they know like what my condition is. Like obviously I'm moving, but you know, all that they, you know, they show, they shone the light on me and they, I, I think they tried to announce something over a loudspeaker, but you know, I had this waterfall behind me the whole time and it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to sound like a really steady, calming rainfall. Yeah. Um, but that, just that was enough to drown out what they were trying to tell me. Um, so I tried so hard to listen and then they ended up just flying away without me ever knowing what they were saying. So annoyance, but... <laughs> to say the least. And that's Thursday. So you go to bed on Thursday, and then you wake up on Friday. Were you feeling like, today's my day? That's precisely... Today, today is it. I'm putting my backpack on early. I'm putting the backpack on early. The boss face is going on. I'm getting us out of here. I just... Um, I knew I had I had come to grips with the fact that like last night or like the night before it was like one more night, I can do this one more night. And then um, as soon as Friday rolls around, I woke up I wake up pretty pretty motivated to get out of there. I just I really have a strong feeling that the today was the day. So um, you know I obviously didn't want to just make any assumptions and put myself in any danger. Or, you know, but I just, I still sat there. I still laid there. I still kept my foot still. Um, did whatever I needed to do. Um, and just waited, um, you know. But come 11 o'clock, as I'm laying there, um, sure enough, there comes the second round of Navy search and rescue. I hear the same propellers again, but this time um, their approach was way more intentional. They knew exactly where I was. And they made their way, and they lowered themselves right into my my little canyon, and I was like, "This is it." Yeah. I I cannot explain like the the euphoria and the happiness and just the like the relief. I guess this time I was just so emotionally just dead that I, you know, I was just like just. <laughs> Please get me out of here. Yeah. I was barely, I could barely feel any other emotions, just like, just desperation, just as excited, but just get me out of here. As the man, um, Adam, was coming down to save you, was there any, did you have any doubts still of like, I don't know, I won't, I still won't make it? I didn't I have know. any, I didn't have any doubts that I wouldn't make it, except. You know, of course, I'm going to have, like, a, an irrational thought or two mm -hmm. while I'm up there. Um, you know, I was in a very, like, tight space. There was not much getting around, like, you know, to describe how, 
like narrow this canyon was, um, the helicopter could not fly right over us. They had to kind of go out where there was a little bit more leeway. But that also made it harder for the rescuers to get to me. Now, obviously, I didn't get to like talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, like, hey, what was this like for you? But like from my perspective, you know, they're trying to um, touch ground. Adam's trying to touch ground on my cliff. Um, and I am so stressed watching this happen because, um, you know, the, the wind from the propellers was so strong. It was just like blowing everything around. It was unbelievably strong. But as a result of that, you know, Adam is rappelling down and he's like on this thin rope and he's trying to, you know, he has his backpack of medical supplies on. He has a stretcher hooked on him and he has, you know, additional things all over to uh, help me. Um, but the wind from the propellers was so strong and the positioning of where I was was so difficult to reach that, you know, it took him probably 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, maybe. Obviously, like, my time frame is probably a little bit out of whack, but it was a very long time of watching him try so hard to get to this spot. Um, he just kept, like, trying to push off a wall and swing to me, and he just kept missing, and then he kept... You know, it was it was a very very difficult and technical spot to get to, and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, like should I help him? Like, should I like reach for his hand? Like, I I was so stressed. That there, I was definitely. I didn't think I wasn't gonna get out of there, but the irrational thought process was definitely like, I'm my rescuers are literally about to go down, <laughs> and now I'm gonna Do be stuck here forever. Can I help you? So um. I, was, I really just I wanted to help. <laughs> like. So they finally get you up, and they put you on kind of a can, and then um, kind of lift you up like a stork, almost. Essentially, you know? yes. It's like, I don't even know the official term for it. Um, I think they use it in hospitals. You know, that's the mm -hmm. best way I can describe it. it. You know, it's like a cocoon slash harness thing. So obviously, it took once he t uh, touched ground, it took him like 10 minutes to really like assess the situation, assess me and my injuries, um, stabilize my foot, getting me um, all secured in this, um, you know, in this cocoon thing. That's the only term that I have for it. Hooked me onto him, and then that's just, that's when it was official. That's when it was like just announced to his speaker, like, all right, we're ready to go. And I'm like, I, I had no words or no like way to put those feelings in, into words. Um, but yeah, from that moment, um, I just, I didn't even know what to think, but you know, we, I felt us starting to like lift up. Um, and that is when, you know, I, at that point I was like, I literally can't be scared of anything. <laughs> There's no way I am not scared of anything, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm being lifted up on a tiny rope in this tiny Canyon. So I was like, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm not watching this. Um, so, you know. I feel as we're up in the air, um, and we get to one point. I know we're still midair, and I decide to open my eyes. I just crack them open, and I look down, and I just see this vast, just rocks, beige, nothing. And I just, like, I, I just, it was beside myself. Just how, how did they find us there? Yeah. It, I, I had no idea. It was just insane to see. So I just closed my eyes again. Um, in this, time I decided to open them one more time was when I, when I knew that we were finally in the helicopter doors. 
And that's like, that was in my mind, just like the next step or the next, That that's like when the next chapter started. I was, that's when I was 100% sure that I made it out of there, that we made it out of there. Did you feel safe? Yes. That was the moment. Now, obviously, my foot was still in absolute excruciating pain, and it had been for days and days and days. Um, you know, like I would say that I would look down at it, and I was like, how is this not physically in, on flames? Like, why? how is this not on fire? It was hurt so bad, but... Um, I did. Feel, I felt safe. Like it was um, a surreal thing to like have human contact again. As you were, as you were in the in the helicopter, and leaving Alex's body on the cliff. How was that for you? Um, I feel it might sound crazy to just. It's not that I didn't think about it. Of course, I I thought about it, but. You know, I had six days of sitting there and, you know, being with him. Um, so in a lot of ways, I, I resolved a lot when I was up there. Um, it wasn't long after he passed that, you know, I had a very vivid image in my head. I'm just laying there um, in my little, on my rock bed, and I have a very vivid image of him like on the greenest of all golf courses with like the biggest beer belly and a Miller light in hand. I'm like, all right, you wasted no time. You <laughs> wasted no time. It, it, just those little things. Um, I don't know those things. And just like the, the, what your mind goes to when you're in that survival kind of situation. Um, it, it, that gave me peace in a sense. That was kind of like the first, like, you're not, yeah, it was like a, I was like physically alone, but not like, not spiritually alone, I guess, yeah. or emotionally alone. So I don't, I, I could never possibly put that into words either, how that is, or like why I was able to get up on that helicopter and, you know, be okay leaving him. But I knew that he was in good hands too, because another helicopter ended up, you know, coming for him. Uh, mm -hmm. right after I was taken away. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it was obviously extremely bittersweet because that had been... That had been my, like, weird home for six days. That had been all I knew for all those hours, all those days. So leaving was obviously very bittersweet, but um, I don't know. I would come to, like, a weird... yeah. That makes sense. Um, so then the copter gets you to, um, so then you get to the hospital and you're all alone and dirty. Very. And, and covered in bruises, head to toe, front to back. Your hands are mangled and your foot is in the boot now. But at the time, I mean, weren't there talks of amputating it? There it was, was really bad. The pictures are unlike anything I've ever seen. They're gross. Um, there wasn't talk of amputating it, per se. I was worried about that the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I for some reason, maybe in a movie or a TV show or somewhere, I had heard along the way to keep your shoe on. 
in case of like a severe injury. Um, so that's what I did. And I was obviously, I was so curious. I was so nervous because I didn't know if I, there was like anything major going on down there. I won't say any more like super gruesome details. But I was very worried that something was wrong, but I just, I knew I shouldn't take it off. And I knew it needed the stabilization and I knew that it needed to be um, like com compressed a bit because the swelling was out of control. So it allowed to kind of keep it in, in place. And uh, I believe one of the doctors had told me or someone had told me afterwards that I made the right decision. That's just like one of the one of the intuitive decisions that I made somehow that ended up saving my leg. I could have definitely lost my leg had I just made that one decision to take off my shoe, um, and the swelling would have gotten out of control, and the th things could have ended up way differently had I not done that. Um, but it was, you know, it did not look good. <laughs> so you're in the hospital, and. How long, so this is Friday, Friday afternoon. Yes, Friday afternoon, Friday, yeah. It started two, on Easter 2 Sunday. 2 p.m. on Friday. Okay, it started on Easter Sunday, finally Friday. You're alone. In what hospital, where were you in the world? Because Death Valley's in California. Yeah, Death Valley is in the middle of nowhere. It's like on the Nevada border. Um, I was taken to Ridgecrest Regional Hospital in a tiny, tiny town called Ridgecrest. Um, just like a tiny little emergency room. And so where were your parents then, or your family? Did they know uh, that you were safe? Were they coming for you? Yes. Um, I think, now all this obviously, I'm, everything I know on this end is just what I've been told. <laughs> but I think um, as soon, the minute that they found out that you know we had been found, uh, and that we were gonna be rescued, um, uh, my mom and my brother hopped on a plane, the first flight out of Cincinnati to, um, Las Vegas. Did you fly into Vegas? Las Vegas, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, your mom, Margaret, and your brother, Chris, and they flew into Vegas, rented a car, and drove three hours like speed demons. Because once you get out of treatment for your leg, you're just in the hospital waiting room by yourself, and you're filthy in the same, are you in the same clothes that you entered? The hospital in, with? Eventually, um, you know, yes. Because didn't, they didn't bathe you or anything. Like, you weren't bathed. I don't <laughs> oh, know if that's standard oh, no. protocol or not, but. No, I you still smell just as bad as the time <laughs> I went in there. I felt very bad for them. But, um, yeah, no, they just. I think my, my clothes ended up who knows where. I was obviously in a um, hospital gown, but um, I had not been bathed. I still was absolutely filthy, um, but I was in, I was in good hands. I was, I had finally like my safe space, but, and I don't even know that I would say that I was like, um, it, it was very, definitely weird to be there alone, you know, cause in the beginning, all I wanted was just like, I was like, I'm, I just really hope, cause I had no idea of knowing if anyone was gonna, if my family was gonna come be with me, but I'm like, please just like telepathically let them know, just like hop on a plane, because I would love some company from some family right now, because <laughs> it was not ideal. I'm Thankfully, just they did. So what are you what are you thinking at this point? Because I mean, were you happy to be safe? Did you feel alone? Weirdly, no. And I obviously, like I wanted my family to be there, and I once I was able to get service and my phone was back on, um, I had found out that they were on the way, which was like an immense relief for me. 
Um, so that I think the anticipation, knowing that they were on the way, that just that was all I needed really. So then um, they arrive, Margaret and Chris, and it's your first time seeing anyone love family um, since this whole thing started. And how was that? Um, so uh, they had discharged me strangely, but not strangely, but like because you were in the hospital, it was really quick. They, they yeah, I was, you I, was like, you're done. I was discharged by like 10 p.m. That you know, obviously they had taken care of my foot and everything like that, giving me all the medications I needed, fluids, um, some hospital applesauce, best applesauce I've ever had. <laughs> but yeah, because we haven't touched on this. So because you're there for you know Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you finally leave on day six. Had he eaten anything the whole time? I so we had those. We had packed those four things of tuna. Um, and one of the very real realizations that I had was that um, I really have no idea when and if I'm going to be rescued, and I need to make this food last as long as possible. Because like I said, this place was extremely desolate. There's nothing around. There's no possibility of finding food. And like, I don't know enough about like the insects. Like If I had to resort to that, there weren't plants. Not eating that scorpion. Absolutely not. Mm-mm. So I guess you might have deserved it at that point, but <laughs> I, I didn't. I don't have. I didn't have enough knowledge to know what was okay and whatnot. So, with the, those four packs of tuna, I ended up eating one of them over six days because mm. I just somehow. I also knew that just I, I, you can go way longer without eating food as opposed to water. You need water, and you drink all the water that you guys had brought in the water that you got, and uh, the the stream. You drank a little bit of the stream water as well. Yes, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Um, that was just uh, one of those other decisions. It, it was a 50-50. This could either definitely kill me or it could save my life. Because mm-hmm. um, when I ran out of water on Wednesday, um, I knew I had the waterfall, and that is literally my only option that I had. So I just went ahead and filled up the two um, the two water bladders that we had, and you know, I just take it took it a little bit at a time, uh, just just enough to like keep my mouth from being completely dry, mm-hmm. um, you know, and let that just sit and see what happened. And it ended up being another absolute life-saving decision that seemingly also came out of nowhere. But that waterfall in in all of Death Valley National Park, there's there's not that much water. Yeah. It's not like here. You there can't are find two water official anywhere. streams in Death Valley. That's news to me. <laughs> I was by one of them, and it helped me tremendously. It obviously saved my life. So, um, water, a little bit of water, and a pack of tuna. Can't say I'll ever eat tuna again, but <laughs> um, you're not missing anything. So then your family comes, and then, um, and it's Friday. Yeah, Friday night. Uh, it was like 4 a.m. Cincinnati time. Did uh, they bring you food? No. <laughs> what? You didn't stop at a 7-Eleven, get the girl a Twizzlers or anything? I'm just now, this is like a good realization <laughs> that I'm having. They didn't even bring me food. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they were worried about just like, getting there. They booked it from yeah. you know Las Vegas to just see me. And like to answer your question before that, with that reunion, like I'm just sitting there. Um, one of the nurses actually, all the nurses ordered Del Taco, mm. and I'm like, 
Dang, that sounds good. Delicious. Did they offer you any? Um, they didn't, but my nurse was absolutely amazing. Hold on. These nurses who know that you were just in the desert alone for six days well, she did got, not offer you any she Del got, Taco? She got me one, like, without saying it. She's like, she ordered her thing, and then she came over, and she's like, one of these is for you. I said, awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for your passion. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. So I got a burrito. Now, I, I was not prepared for, like, going from malnutrition to, like, very, um, you know, Del Taco. Yeah, gorge, <laughs> so gorge like, fest. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what I'll do. Yeah, yeah. It was, I had some of the tortilla. I'm like, this is good tortilla. So tell me what it was like the first time you saw your family. Um, not as, like, dramatic as one might think because I'm just, like, in another world. <laughs> I'm just like sitting in this recliner in the middle of a bit, not, uh, somewhat busy ER because it's not a big ER. Mm -hmm. And they just set me up in a recliner, which I was very grateful for, instead of just like kicking me to the curb. Mm -hmm. Allowed me to wait for my family. Um, I'm sitting there just like uh, with my feet up, relaxing because it's the first time I've relaxed in a while. And uh, I heard like, hey, Emily. And like I felt like... Chris picking like some probably live animals out of my hair <laughs> and like some some branches whatever was in there it, it like you know I've been laying on my laying down for six days and it was just like the worst mat you've ever seen or mm -hmm. felt in your life so he just he was just like hey <laughs> they walked around the corner I'm like hey <laughs> it was wow. very emotional I can imagine so. Um, I think everyone was just like in total autopilot. We're just like crazy shocked. I can imagine because your family found out that you were missing um, you'd, when you'd been gone for um, like on Tuesday, right? They found out on Tuesday, and then um, were yeah. I mean, I can only imagine what was going through your mind for those days that you didn't know, and yeah. So I can only imagine the shock of knowing that she is safe and she is okay. And that you were okay. And um, so then what happens? To the, they pick you up and then you make it back to Cincinnati. You get on the next flight. Basically, yeah. Um, I couldn't get surgery immediately because of the insane amount of swelling that there was. And I'd already been like sitting on this um, for six days. So we ended up... Um, finally getting a flight out of California that following Wednesday. Okay. Uh, and that's when, you know, that's when the emotions hit. <laughs> Arriving back in our awesome neighborhood where everyone had, like, signs and balloons and all, like, this big welcome home thing. Um, just totally surreal because, like, you know, on the plane, I'm like... Is it total culture shock? I mean, like, I know I, like, have always lived in this this life with all these things, but going from, like, six days on a mountain to on a plane in a bougie first-class seat with a mimosa in hand, I'm like, this, this doesn't feel right. It's a very strange, um, very strange thing. Um, but once once we finally arrived home, that's that's when it was... That's when it hit, and I was, I was weirdly together, the whole time, just like emotionally. I just 
still in just go-go mode, still fight mm-hmm. or flight, still in major survival mode. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until you know, we were picked up from the airport and uh, drove through the neighborhood, and I'm just still like, this is how nice. <laughs> like I took some videos, took some pictures. A lot of my neighbors are here also, by the way. An excellent neighborhood, Fantastic guys. neighbors, yeah. fantastic neighborhood. <laughs> I remember you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I met Emily, it was at a neighborhood function. Yeah, you're there as well. And um, actually how we met, she was sitting casually like this on a grassy knoll under some shade. And I just approached her and said, hey, what happened to your foot? She's like, well. <laughs> and then we started chatting. And with a beautiful smile on her face, she told me the closeness of this story. And, and, and like just the people that you were sitting around, everyone was so loving and so supportive. And it was like, you aren't alone in this. Everyone is here for you. And so her um, community, everyone had made big posters and put them out on their mailboxes. Yeah. And so when you drove around, that all said, welcome home, Emily, we love you, and um, various signs of encouragement and love and welcome home. Yes, I think within like a couple hours of me coming home, my dad organized like, hey guys, just everyone, she's coming home. If you have the time, energy, or just anything, you're the ability to do this and do it. So I guess I got home, and that's just, we drove around the neighborhood. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that this is insane. But it wasn't until, you know, we're riding around the neighborhood, and that's, I'm like, and then we start heading back into our little circle where we live, and that's when like, my whole family was back there. Signs, um, cheering, sobbing. I'm like, here we go. <laughs> that's when it all was just like, it felt, that's when it like felt the most real or just like the most surreal part. Yeah. Because everyone was there. Everyone just, yeah. No words to describe it, really. But every single person was there. Just like that's what all I was dreaming of the whole time on the mountain. Just mm-hmm. be home, be safe, be in Cincinnati, be with my family, with some skyline. <laughs> Thankfully, there was some skyline waiting on, waiting for me inside. <laughs> they had they had a plan. They had it ready to go. I got some UDF. I got some graders waiting for me inside. It was a very very crazy emotional indescribable moment arriving yeah. home and how has it been since you've been back it has been two months crazy um and barely any words to describe it um i don't think that i expected it to be i had no idea what to expect like when i was on the mountain like i obviously thought a lot about what it would be like when i did finally get to the place where i'm here and home and i just imagine just like the utmost misery and just nothing but horrible everything. I didn't know how I'd be able to make it past there, but because I knew that when once I got home, that was when like the reality would likely hit. And it's not like it hasn't hit, but at the same time, um, it's it's been a really surreal time being home. Because uh, I think I don't know if it's the shock of it all, or I don't know if, or what what played a role in my ability to be able to like sit here, which first of all, I would literally never do in any life. <laughs> um, so it makes no sense. Um, no part of it makes sense in my mind, how it's been since I've been home. Obviously all the support has been unreal, and I think that I think means the entire world, like obviously everybody in this room, 
plays every part of that. That's this is what made it like easy to come home and deal with it. It's not like I I dismiss anything that happened. It's not like I don't think about anything that happened. I have those moments, but at the same time, I didn't think that I'd have this realization or this new outlook on life that I have. Mm -hmm. Like I've always had a, a decent outlook on life, but not to this extent. What is your outlook on life now? It it uh it I guess made me think of all of the things that matter and don't matter in life, all the petty things that people worry about, um, all the petty things people argue about, negative comments on social media, like everything. And that's why I'm just like, I just, just kill them with kindness. And just like positivity, like I don't, just being through what I've been through, it's not that I would ever expect someone to understand at the level of going through something like that and being able to have that kind of understanding. But it's, I don't even know. Barely any words <laughs> to describe it. What I can send, uh, what I get and see is that your boss face, number one, you live in. But it seems like along the way, you've kept your feet, foot, solid on the ground. One of them, yeah. And you have been open and received all of this every step of the way. You haven't been scared of anything. You didn't shy away from anything. And you were just solidly moving through it, which takes a tremendous amount of courage. And I cannot imagine what it's like to be you and inside of your brain and your heart. But I know that it comes from the most beautiful place. And thank you so much for sharing all of this with all of us. I know that everyone here is going to come out of this different and better. So thank you so much. You can do hard things, really hard things. That that's the goal. I just plan on. Uh, it's been a surreal ride. I know it's this is still just the beginning. Um, I knew on, up on that mountain that I had some sort of purpose to fulfill, and I might not even know what that is yet. I don't know where my life is heading right now. I don't know what's in store next. I don't know what tomorrow's gonna look like after everything. Um, but I'm just, I just take it day by day. Like I said, breath by breath, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. Eventually we'll be working up week to week. <laughs> when you get there. When, whenever I get there, I'm just, I'm along for the ride. I'm just healing the best I can with the best community, best family. Mm. Just, I don't know. Thank you so much. Everybody, Emily Hankel. Do you realize, Fretboard, are you guys already closed? We do realize our timing, our timing is off for this. A little bit. So um, I think if anybody does have a question, if anybody is willing to stick around, number one, can we please have two strawberry beers up here? Yes, please. And um, if anyone has 
Any questions for Emily? She'd love to answer. Yes, I'm happy do. to answer any questions. If, if I didn't cover anything, none of it makes sense, but if I didn't cover anything, I'm happy to answer any questions someone might have. <laughs> yeah? I tried really hard. I, it obviously was a very, <laughs> it was on the foot that I couldn't even move. And, but I like, I panicked, I freaked out as soon as I saw it. I tried to swat it off, it fell, it disappeared somewhere. I didn't see it and I just tried to like, it was a lot of, it was gone out of my sight, that's all I cared about. It was just a lot of, I knew there was probably so many critters around me but I just tried my very hardest to just be like, those aren't there, ignore it. It's great to be back. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I'm back, back here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, just, uh, cheers. Um, just one of the coolest things that probably happened up on the, uh, the mountain. It, the most desolate, as I said, place ever. Um, it, one of the things that just brought so much, like, I don't even know how to describe it, just like a, a peaceful feeling, um, you know, starting a day or two after Alex passed, um, there was, I, I was laying down underneath my emergency blanket and I heard, like, the, the very familiar sound of, like, hummingbird wings. And I'm, I sat up and I'm like, there's no, there's no way. There's no way I'm hearing this. But uh, turns out I got up and in this tiny little canyon just a hummingbird happened to find its way to me and it just was like a really nice um peace of mind through it all it was just like one little sign that just you know one sign that made me think that all right everything's gonna be fine and i ended up looking up you know that symbolism afterwards and i'm pretty sure that's pretty much to a t what it said you know a hummingbird visits you after someone's death and I mean, it means that some everything's gonna be okay. It means, I don't know. It mean it's a sign and symbol of rebirth, and I'm taking that and rolling with it. Question. Yeah. Yeah. In your uh, search kit, have you ever evaluated a satellite beacon? A satellite, a satellite beacon was a satellite beacon ever going to be in your? Um, survival kit. Yes. Um, we had been talking about buying one of those for a long time. And, and conveniently, the one trip where we needed it, we didn't have it. But um, that is certainly what we intended on having. Um, now, all the many people, the many wonderful people that were ready to like, pick up and go, um, like my brother being one of them, just like, in my Amazon cart when I got home, was like, I saw it was being delivered. <laughs> A satellite thing because they were ready to go. There was a few people out there that just they bought all the supplies. They were ready to just like go backcountry, exploring to try to find me. But yeah, that it was going to be. Never got to happen, and unfortunately, we just when we needed it, we didn't have it. But I highly recommend having a satellite phone if you're going backcountry camping. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Chris. Yes, Chris. Will you go on another adventure? That's it. That's fair. That's, that's fair. I, thought, I put a lot of thought into that. A lot of things I don't know how I'm going to react to because it's still, like I said, it's like it's the very beginning. 
I don't know how it's gonna go moving forward. I don't know what tomorrow's gonna be like, like I said. Um, I'd guess my, my brother, Chris, has, it does all these kinds of wonderful outdoor adventures and I've been, I went to um, a cool tree house that he built and uh, I, I was always wondering if I, like after that accident, I always wondered if I was gonna be like afraid of heights or um, anything like that, but I just, you know, uh, to my mother's dismay, I climbed up that tree house in my crutches and I just love the heck out of it. So eventually I'll be going back. I have an awesome group of friends that love doing adventures. Kim, what's up? Some other people are here. <laughs> yeah, the, a wonderful group of people that um, just make being outdoors and make make that kind of thing just so enjoyable. I think I'll still be able to go out and enjoy those things. Like I just, I don't know. I just am under the impression, under the feeling, just like life is way too short to not just enjoy little things like that. And even if they're, they're not little, it's just way too short to not enjoy the things you do like. Like I've liked the outdoors and I've loved nature all my life. Um, so I don't want to give it up at all. I don't think I'm going to. But just when the time's right, when I can walk, I'll be, I'm sure I'll be hiking again in no time. My dogs, I'm sure, are mad at me that we have not gone sooner. Any other questions? Yeah, Mitch. Yeah. No, shout out to Inside Edition. No, the dogs no, no, were no. not in the car. Yeah. No, no. So, so the inside dogs, yeah. let's be very clear, the dogs were at Ruth and Joe's house. They were safe. They were at home. Um, this was the, like what, the one trip that we went on without them. I think the picture that circulated was a picture that they were just using to like say what my car looked like. Um, but the dogs were very much safe. They were very much not left in the car. <laughs> yeah. No, that's totally fine. That was a, that was a good point because I was yeah clear that one right up. Yeah. Yes, yes ma'am. Um, oh, reaction from the dogs. That was a, yeah. That was a one of the most prominent things I think. Um, I have two friends that uh, traveled literally all the way across the country just to go because they were stuck in California. So it was very bittersweet. Backtrack a little bit. It was very bittersweet leaving California because I knew I was leaving the dogs. I was leaving Alex. I was leaving my home. I was leaving. Like I lived in Arizona, but you know, I was leaving everything just to like start a new life without even like saying goodbye to the old one. So, you know, including my dogs and they were like our life. Like we, the dogs are the best. Um, so I had two friends, Eric and Andrew Wessling. They're not here, but their they're, uh, mom and sister are. They absolutely selflessly drove all the way across the country. I mean, you know, went all the way across the country um, picked up my car because my car was still in California up like where, not where it was stranded, but at the local police department. They had to drive all the way down to get the dogs. And then they drove all the way from California to Ohio to bring them back to me like a couple weeks after I got home. So once they did that, it was like the most, I don't think the dogs like left my, they still haven't left my side. <laughs> They're very needy. They're very clingy. Um, Jane just fits right. She just like, you know, she goes with the flow. <laughs> Jane goes with the flow, but Nora, you know, 
I think she, they know something's going on. Nora's having a harder time like adjusting. You can tell she's very intuitive. She knows this isn't the life she's remembering, but she also is just, I don't know, very protective over me. But they're, they're safe, they're sound. Um, Alex's dog, I decided to keep with Alex's parents in California. Um, just felt like that was like the best for them to keep a, like a, such a huge piece of him and he loves it there, he loves them. It was hard to keep him there, but all dogs are wonderful. They're, I think they're adjusting just fine. Long story short. Anybody else? Yeah, John. I didn't go to Las Vegas, but my parents, or my mom and my brother did when they came to go pick me up. Oh, oh. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to Vegas. Oh, okay. Not next time. Okay, pool Thank parties. You. Thank we'll you. take her to pool parties in Las Vegas. That's what you got to do. When you can yeah. walk again, you definitely need to be able to walk in order to do that. Yeah. I'm ready for some Las Vegas pool parties. Well, everybody, thank you so much for being a part of this. Emily, thank you again for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I'm glad I made it through without passing out. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You are incredible. You are brave. You are triumphant. And you can do hard things. Really hard things. And our deepest condolences to you and to Alex's family and to the life that was. The life that will be is one that is waiting for you. And I know that you're going to make it the best possible. I'm so proud of you. You did it, girl. Thank you, everyone who has supported Emily and her family and Alex's family. There are links to the GoFundMe and everything else you can do to get involved. Emily is on Instagram at, at @embhenkel. That's E-M-B-H-E-N-K-E-L. And uh, you can also find her on Facebook. Thank you so much to the Fretboard Brewing Company here in Cincinnati, Ohio, who hosted us that evening that we did record this live recording. It was needless to say, uh, an emotionally driven, action-packed night. So thank you so much to everyone who came to support Emily and her family. Emily, thanks to you, girl. We friends for life. We soul sisters. And thank you for your message. You can do hard things. Really hard things.